Welcome, everyone, to Breaking Big Blue. I'm your host, Jordan Ron on ESPN, ESPN.com, Giants reporter. And I don't know if you could sense that little extra excitement in my voice right there because training camp season is upon us. I'm taping this portion of the podcast on Tuesday morning. And right now, the veterans are reporting to training camp. They'll be running conditioning tests, which, by the way, Joe Judge is pretty serious about. And then by Wednesday, they'll be on the field practicing. So we're going to have stuff to talk about to break down for the next, what? It's basically August. Uh, so until January. So for the next, what, four, five months, we actually have football to talk about. And that's why I'm excited. So training camp season is here. Uh, this episode, I'm pretty pumped for it. We talked to Kevin Abrams, the Giants, uh, I believe his title is Vice President. My phone went on uh, sleep mode as I was trying to read his title. Vice President of Football Operations. He's also the Assistant General Manager. And I had a really interesting conversation with Kevin. And I, I think it's important because I was thinking about it. And the reality is Kevin Abrams has already been a candidate twice for the Giants GM job. And I realized I don't think a lot of people really know, I'm talking fans, not people in the building, but fans really know who Kevin Abrams is and what he's about. And you know what? After talking to him, I didn't really realize it either. Like maybe his full background, you know, he gets the, the, the tag slapped on him that he's the money guy, that he's the he was the cap guy. And I don't know if that's necessarily accurate. After having this conversation. So I think you guys are going to enjoy that. We go really in-depth with Kevin Abrams uh, in a few minutes. But first, I'm going to do a couple things here. I'm going to roll through a one-on-one -on -one conversation and, and tell you the highlights of that that I had with Joe Judge over the weekend. And then we'll get to that uh, Kevin Abrams stuff. Uh, but with Joe Judge, and this is kind of like, okay, the headlines uh, entering into camp, we touched on some of the top subjects. I also, I like some, my poll might have been different than everyone else's, and I and Judge talked to pretty much almost everybody on the beat one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. My call, I wanted to know, I asked him, I wanted a lot of feedback on what he thought of the coverage of the team, what he thought of my coverage of the team. Uh, you know, not saying I'm going to take whatever he said and do it, and I just, but it's good to have that kind of feedback. So you could do a self-assessment. So you could say, you know what, maybe I can do this better during the season. Maybe this is something I need to focus on more. So that was a large part of my call. But as for the football side of things, look, we talked about the Saquon subject. To me, that's the number one question around this team this summer is Saquon Barkley. When is he going to be back on the field? And, Really, the gist of it was that Joe Judge said the Giants are going to take a long-term view with Saquon Barkley. And it's kind of what I've been reporting for a while. Uh, but they, his, his, there was a couple interesting things. One is I, the reasoning he gave for that. And it's they've already made such a large investment in this player. They want him to be around long-term. Right, They think it's best for him and the team if they bring him along slowly. Now, that means week one is in question. There's no doubt about that. Nobody knows for sure 
whether Saquon will be back week one or not. It's impossible right now. The, the, would Sa- does Saquon think he could be back? Sure. Will the Giants, if they see him sluggish, you know, some days, if he goes out there and he's able to run around, first of all, they're not going to really turn him loose till midsummerish. I think the key dates are those uh, joint practices. Not that he'll be joining in by those in those joint practices, but getting him to serious like practice type work by mid August, I think, is the date. Mid to late August is the date that we need to sort of circle on our calendar for Saquon Barkley. That was kind of what I came away with from my conversation with Joe Judge and Saquon Barkley. Uh, And is it possible he misses a week or two? Sure. One thing I'm certain about, though, and fantasy owners take note, is that even if Saquon Barkley is there week one and he's back, the Giants are not going to use him as we're all accustomed to seeing them use him. 90% of the snaps early this season is not a realistic possibility. It's not It's not on the menu. I'm telling you. It's not going to happen. The Giants are taking, and then this is Judge's words, a long-term approach. They're going to bring him along cautiously. That doesn't mean when they get to a game, week one and week two, all of a sudden, Saquon Barkley is going to be on the field every play like, like he has been throughout his career. That is just not going to happen. As for the vaccination, uh, the Giants are getting there. The threshold so that you don't have to work with uh, limitations by rules is 85%. The feeling is they'll get there. The feeling is eventually soon enough they'll get close to 100%. So that doesn't seem to be a huge concern with this team. Kadarius Toney, he did test positive recently, but he should be back. By the early part of training camp this week, we'll see how that goes. But I think that that was the hope, the last I heard. Um, So we'll see about that. The other injured guys, nothing crazy serious right now. Uh, But there are some guys, my understanding, that are questionable for week one, aside from Saquon. Like Kyle Rudolph is a little up in the air. Uh, Aaron Robinson seems to be a little up in the air. Those are the two that I'm going to kind of monitor here probably the most, aside from Saquon, of course, because I'll be watching about that Saquon storyline every single day this summer. It's going to be one of the top questions I receive in every interview I do. I'm going to I'm gonna have to answer that question. Hey, when's Saquon coming back? Is he going to be okay? Is he going to be back to full strength by week one? Because my fantasy team needs to know. Uh, you know, I need to know if I should draft him. Should I draft him number through two, three overall? My answer to that would probably be no. I mean, I I just look, he may have a great year. He may be back to, you know, full strength Saquon Barkley by week four, five, six, eight. But it's a risk you're taking. There's risk. There's risk. Extra risk to him this season when it comes to both for the Giants and for fantasy purposes. So Uh, the vaccine stuff, the the Giants are really making uh, large gains in that regard with players, the coaches. Staff, they're all vaccinated. Um, players, they're making huge gains with that in the weeks leading up to training camp here. So those numbers are constantly moving, but they're, they're getting high. And the hope is that they'll be close to 100% soon enough, uh, you know, in the next few weeks. As far as Kadarius Tony, who I brought up before, and I mentioned this before on this podcast, uh, 
The concern with Kadarius Tony isn't huge inside the building right now. They like the way he works. They like what he brings to the table as a player, of course. Is he young and immature? Yeah, probably. The answer to that is probably yes. The Giants knew this when they drafted him. And is it something, you know, they're hoping he matures as they go along? Absolutely. But he's a young player. They like the way he worked. Uh, they like what they saw from him when, when he was there this offseason. Remember, he wasn't there for OTAs. That was strange, to say the least. But he works his butt off. I mean, that's the bottom line. And that's what Joe Judge loves. So if you have a guy who works his butt off, they can make it work with him. Like, that, like I honestly, I think Joe Judge would have no problem working with a guy like Odell Beckham. Because Odell cares about football. He loves football. And he's gonna, when he's out there, he's going to work. You'll have a hard time. You'd have a hard time finding anyone who could like outwork Odell Beckham. So like Joe Judge with those guys, I think would be fine. And I think that's the case here with Kadarius Tony as well. So that was the gist of the conversation with Joe Judge. We're going to get to the Kevin Abrams interview now. I think you guys are going to like this. So on to the next one. Hi, it's Mike Greenberg letting you know ESPN Bet is ready to take you through all the biggest sports moments this spring. The official sportsbook of ESPN has exclusive offers and markets from Scott Van Pelt, Stephen A. Smith, and me, plus many more. From the playoff intensity to finally getting out to the ballpark, there's no better time for sports fans. Sign up today. New users get a bet reset up to $1,000 in bonus bets if your first bet doesn't win. Download ESPN Bet today. What a play. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. See app for details. All right. We've got a special guest here. We got Kevin Abrams, the Giants VP of Football Operations and Assistant General Manager. Kevin, welcome. I, I appreciate you taking the time to do this. I, I, it's hard for me to believe when I'm looking it up. You've been like the assistant GM for, for over 15 years. What are we at? 18 now? 19? Uh, 22 with the Giants, 18 in the current role. Uh, 18 as the assistant general manager of the Giants. And somehow when I go and I try and Google search information about you, it's like I'm chasing a ghost. I don't understand. How do you work? How do you do this? And you're in such a prominent role and, and you, you were able to sort of skirt the media for about, you know, the first 15 years. I mean, I, this, I was thinking about it. I've never written a full story about you aside from when, you did the uh, when you did the interview for uh, the GM job, and I've been around for eight years now, eight nine years. So, I mean, kudos to you. I mean, is this is this a planned approach or what? I think the sad truth, Jordan, is that I'm just not that damn interesting. That must be the case. <laughs> I don't agree with that because that's why you're here. Because <laughs> we want everybody wants to people want to know about you. You know, you're you're a big figure in this organization. You're a big part. You're input in, into a lot of these moves. And uh, you have an interesting background, I think. So uh, I want you to tell us about that. How does somebody from Toronto, Canada, end up in the NFL and in an executive role like this? Like, how, give us the uh, the abbreviated version of how that happened. Well, uh, I'll, I'll make it as abbreviated as I can, and by all means, cut me off if I start running on long. But no, no, it all, no, no. It started I want a while all the ago. But sure, sure. So. Uh, I mean, growing up in Canada, I, you know, like most kids, I played everything and, and loved all sports, but my sport of choice was football. I played it as long as I could, as, as best as I could. But um, when my playing days were done, I, I wanted to get into coaching, gave that a shot with my high school coach. 
um, loved it. Um, but in Canada, coaching isn't quite the career as it is down here. Um, there aren't that many opportunities for full-time employment as a coach. It's usually something you do part-time volunteer until you're a head coach at a very prominent high school or college. Wait, and I got to ask you real quick though. Is high school football there? Is it, is it more, is it NFL style or is it more resemble Canadian football style? It depends on which leagues you're playing in. There's most schools through the uh, provincial academic system play Canadian rules. So three downs, big end zone, wider field, longer field, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, I played in a league. My school didn't have football. So I played in a provincial league um, that was sort of an amalgamation of kids who went to schools. Cause not every school has football in Canada. So it was, we drew from all different areas that school areas that didn't have football for different reasons and in the Metro Toronto area. And we made a team out of it. And then we played teams from, towns that were just outside of Toronto and that league played, it was, a, it was a weird combination of it's hard to explain it, but it was <laughs> Canadian field, Canadian ball, uh, some Canadian rules, but four downs is kind of how it went. And um, don't ask me how they arrived at that, but that's what we <laughs> played. Um, and then, uh, so anyway, when I was, when I started, tried coaching, loved it. Didn't think there was a career opportunity there if I stayed up in Canada. So the thought was that I would, go pursue whatever I was going to pursue, um, as a vocation, but, and and then coach on the side, you know, if I had kids coach them until I had kids coach, um, just love of the game. And, um, was going to go to law school, had an opportunity to keep working for a company that I'd spent my summers working for as an undergrad. Nothing really was resonating with me as I got to do this for the rest of my life. Right. And I spoke to a gentleman who was the PR director for the Toronto Blue Jays and um, just had a, a very common conversation of, you know, you're doing this for a living. You know, like most kids, I love sports. I'd love to, before I go down the road of doing something a little more traditional or typical, you know, is there a pathway that you can recommend that gives you an opportunity to work in, in professional sports? And his rec- he gave me his recommendation, which is basically quit all the jobs I had and get all the practical sporting experience I could get, which was coaching football still and working for the provincial amateur football association and volunteering and running coaching clinics and fundraisers. Your parents. And then, yeah, they were, they were (laughs) looking a little sideways at me when I was doing this. And then he said, apply to Ohio university's graduate program for sports administration, which was um, a bit of a revelation to me. I didn't know they had academic coursework in sports administration. So I thought, okay, I wasn't dying to go back to school. Um, but, um, I applied, got it, got in thankfully. And, um, they probably had some Canadian international quota they had to fit. <laughs> and, um, so I went down there, worked with their football coaches and it was a great opportunity to work in a division one athletic department, um, work with the division one football program, help them with their recruiting, um, we were able to do all kinds of events within the athletic department and then through alumni, um, which is why the program was recommended because it's the oldest and has the most alumni. And I was able to work events like the NBA all-star game, the cotton bowl and the baseball winning meetings, all of which were phenomenal experiences. And then through another alumni ended up going over to NFL Europe to the London Monarchs to work in corporate relations for a season, which was another great experience. And then through another alumni went worked with the Buffalo Bills in public relations. And all these experiences were phenomenal for a million different reasons. It's the work and watching other people work for different people, work styles, management styles, um, learning how to be a professional, regardless of what the job was. And it also taught me sort of what I wanted to do and what I didn't want to do, which, you know, as you're a young professional, that's as important as anything, not just 
knowing what you want to do, but sometimes you have to vet all the possibilities and eliminate the ones that are just, you know, muddying the, the pursuit. So, um, so I realized that, you know, corporate relations, PR, um, general ops are all very interesting, but I didn't know that, you know, for a 40 year career, would that win the day or in a profession where the hours are weird and long and one day there might be a family and that would be a big sacrifice to work in this industry the way I wanted to. And, and I kind of really felt strongly that if I'm not going to be on the team building side that, you know, maybe, maybe it's just best to be a fan. And, and, but if I could get a chance to be on the team building side, that's what I wanted to do. And I really wanted to get into right. scouting. Um, but I just wasn't finding those opportunities uh, until I went to the Washington Redskins um, Charlie Cashley has a really had a really robust intern program through a connection I'd made at the Monarchs, and I got a chance to work in their scouting and and training camp operations department just for a summer. It was very quick. So when but is this? In, give me give me an approximate time range. This is I'm going to say summer of '97. I think I might be off by a year, but I think it's summer of '97. And I had just the best time because I was around the scouts all the time. And Charlie took an interest and made sure that we were learning as much as doing just the busy work and, you know, just simple things that, you know, at the time was, was like winning a Super Bowl was the opportunity to make cutups and talk players with scouts and understand right. why, you know, what are you looking for and what, what are you watching and, and what's your takeaway from watching this? And they just, you know, it was just really good people that couldn't have been more accommodating and generous with their time. and. Um, and so that opportunity led to an opportunity at the league office, the manager council, which was an entirely different part of the team building side of things, which was cap contracts, collective bargaining agreement, and another just great environment to be a young person and, and people that took, um, they, they wanted the internship program to be a learning experience, not just a, you know, free labor kind of experience. And it was, right. again, just learned so much. The internship kept extending because they were losing staff pretty regularly to clubs. And ultimately the giants were looking for a salary cap analyst. And uh, I was lucky enough to get recommended by my boss at league office and interviewed and, and with Ernie Corsi and was offered the job. And if you had asked me one year or five years before that, you know, how about the salary cap is a, a career path. And I mean, five years part of that, I might've said the what, you know, but you know, I was a, a fan of the game enough that I knew what it was, and I would do my own readings on football enough that the salary cap would cross my radar. But I didn't know know it. And going to the league office was like an intensive macro course in salary cap, and you were talking to thirty-two teams about what they were doing, why they were doing it, if they had to change contracts because of things that fell out of compliance with the CBA. Mm -hmm. You were going rules with them. So you understood why people were writing what they were writing, what they were, why they were structuring things, things the way they structured it. You knew from the league office, you had a good sense of the league union relationship when it came to contracts, interpretation, uh, rules, things that, you know, were grieved from time to time. You understand where the disconnect was. So it was really a great, great learning environment, training ground, and uh, opened the door for an opportunity with the Giants. And um, never plan to be. Mind, are you still thinking you want to be on the scouting team building side though? At, at this point, um, I knew my experience most recently was in the salary cap and I knew I was being hired to be a salary cap analyst. And, um, I like to think that I went in there not saying, well, I'll do this so I can become a scout. I was going there to be, to do that job, to contribute to their team building. You know, I knew the cap was an important job um, or mm -hmm. important piece of the, the team building process, but, 
Um, I also realized after I was there at the Giants for, you know, six months or a year, as important as the cap is, um, I don't think it's a full-time job all by itself. And fortunately, while once I got in the building, because I had a fascination with the scouts and the scouts had a fascination, you know, Dave Gellman, Jerry Reese, Mark Sunderland, our, our scouting directors at the time, all had an interest in the cap and contracts and, and we would um, teach each other. You know, that I would do make, we didn't have a robust internship program then in player personnel. So, you know, knowing what I knew from Washington, I would do the cutups for them and I would help them organize their short list. And, and I would teach them contracts and I would give them seventh round picks to do and explain to them what, you know, start off with simple things like why we defer signing bonuses, why we put splits in contracts, um, what the minimum salaries are and, and how they got, how the league and the union come about those minimum salaries. So, you know, started small. And then over time I would go over more complex contract stuff or, or show them the entire market when we were talking about players so that they knew where market where players would fall within that market. And then they would allow me to do some practice squad evaluations and, and edit some director's reports or, you know, go on the road ultimately to college games or help with free agency. So it just sort of, it all sort of grew organically. It wasn't a by design, you know, I wasn't trying to sneak my way into the scouting area of things by agreeing to do a salary cap job. I was going there to be the best salary cap guy in the league. And then, you know, because of um, the way we were structured and because we were very collaborative conversations just sort of happened. And, um, and Ernie was great about allowing me to spread my wings a little bit. And Dave and Jerry and Marv were great about bringing me into the fold and, and teaching me a little bit. And in return, I tried to teach them as best I could. When or if did you even did the, did the, did you have the uh, desire or vision to maybe become a general manager in this league? Did is that has that ever been a real goal of yours, or is that just something that kind of evolved? I mean, I've been fortunate to interview three times, and and I'm glad that I was identified as a candidate. Um, I would love to be a general manager at some point during my career. I don't know that it's, um, it's certainly not anything that preoccupies me. You know, I'm busy trying to help us, um, be better. You know, we're, we aren't what we want to be right now. So, you know, that's where my focus is. It's not on my next step. Um, if it happens, it happens, you know, if it doesn't, you know, I love where I am and, you know, I guess the short answer is if if I retired in however many years and I never had that opportunity, I'd probably be a little disappointed in myself. But, you know, I'm I'm also in a position where I think the job I have now is better than a lot of general manager jobs in the league, very honestly. So um, why do you say that? That's an interesting comment. It's who I work for, who I work with and where I get to work. I mean, I'm, I'm in the, the best city in the world i'm working for the greatest ownership i would imagine in professional sports and i'm with people that i've either worked with forever that were here before or that i've had a hand in bringing on board and and have a tremendous amount of respect for so uh i mean there's not a day i don't go into the giants and i'm not reminded of how fortunate i am to be doing what i'm doing and who i'm doing with and and where i'm doing it how, how i'm curious what do you think about this how different is the cap job that exists now from the cap job when you came into this league, does it even resemble the same job in your mind? I think it's very much the same job. I mean, the, yeah. the cap functions largely the same way. The dollars are larger. I think it's a 
bigger part of more conversations now because I think the league as a whole has become more educated about uh, the cap and how best to work within it. I think, mm-hmm. you know, used to see, you'll remember this, but I mean, 15, 20 years ago, it seemed like every year there was four teams that weren't in cap trouble. I mean, they were in jail. There was fire sales. It was like the Marlins after they won World Series kind of sell-offs. And um, you don't see that happening as much anymore. I mean, teams are always going to push the limits a little bit when they think they have a window and they want to take advantage of it. And that's going to lead to at some point you're going to have to, that bill comes due, but um, but you don't see teams getting into the same kind of trouble, even though we've had some real moments in time where, you know, this year, um, you know, the cap didn't go where everyone thought it would have was going to go a year ago, you know, yeah, before I mean, the pandemic. I mean, or, let's be real. Who's planning for a global pandemic? I mean, I know you, well, you're planning for outliers, but this is a, this is a, you know, one, this is a one-off problem you would hope and something that no one's ever seen before. Yeah. I mean, you're, you, you like to think you're always prepared for the worst case scenarios. I'm not sure that anyone had this on their menu of scenarios to be considered that might be the worst. This is right. pretty extraordinary. Um, but you know, there was, we came out of a CBA 11 or 12 years ago and we were in the middle of the 07, 11 run and the, the cap was basically flat for three years and we were trying to maintain what we thought was a pretty good roster at the time. And that wasn't easy, but you know, you figure it out and then, you know, that bill comes due, but you're not seeing even teams that are in that kind of position, you know, New Orleans has been, you know, really pushing the envelope because they knew they had a Drew Brees window and mm-hmm. they did a great job of bringing in as much talent as they could. You know, they did kick the can down the road a little bit by design and, you know, that's going to have some short-term consequences and they'll, they'll dig themselves out from underneath it, but you don't see them selling off Cameron Jordan. You don't see them selling off right. Alvin Kamara. You don't see them selling off all their, their best pieces because, you know, I think the league as a whole has become much more adept at, um, not mortgaging, mortgaging the future like we all did probably back in the late 90s, early aughts. Right. And you just find ways to, you know, pre-plan so you don't put yourselves in those positions now. I think that that, that seems to be what what you're heading out there. Uh, so you you interviewed with the Giants, obviously, when that, when that job came over and after, after Jerry was fired in uh, 2017, late in 2017. You interviewed with the Lions at one point, I believe, uh, and there was a third you said somewhere along the way. I'm drawing a blank off the top of my head. Remind me. Uh, Giants when we hired Dave. Oh, wait, is that what I just said? What was it? What was the third then? Oh, the Giants the first uh, time? Well, yeah, when we, when we hired Jerry. When we hired Jerry. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I gotcha. Uh, so tell me when you look back and you say, and you look at those interviews, what did you, what did you learn from them? What do you say? Okay, here's kind of what I need to do in order, you know, I, I could look at the landscape and say, okay, here's kind of where I need to sort of fill in my resume in order to get, you know, to a general manager job at some point. What, what, what did you learn? What did I learn? Well, I think that I'm, you know, time after time, I've become more prepared for the conversation. I think that just experience, you know, time passes between opportunities. And I think I've been more experienced that's hopefully come across when I've interviewed. Um, I think that, um, you know, in my own way and for my own reasons, I think I view um, my candidacy different than I would have the first time, second time, third time. Um, I think I'm a different candidate. So in one way, you know, again, it's, I just, you know, professional development involving, oh, yeah. you know, uh, yeah, we're all that as you get older and more experienced, I think so. And, and just, you know, the longer you're in this business and the longer that you, you know, are purposeful about, about 
um, not networking so much, but reaching out to people in and around this business or other industries and just making it a point to learn from other people that have probably been through similar, if not more complicated versions of what we go through. You, you pick up some nuggets that can only help you going forward. Things that we, you know, I like to think that we try and apply at the giants and things that, um, you know, you just have a more well-rounded perspective on the challenges that anyone faces in whatever professional walk of life. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's sort of a point of emphasis for me. And, and I try and speak to as many people as I can and learn as much as I can, knowing that I have a lot to learn. I think the perception, at least from my perspective, when you hear from fans is that Kevin Abrams, oh, he's the money man. He's the cap guy. Now, I'm not sure the Giants view it that way because they, and especially speaking to you, we you, I, we hear now, like I knew you were always probably more involved in personnel than people knew about. But even hearing you talk now, you're talking about how this was as far back as, you know, before you came to the Giants. Uh, do you feel like in any way you're working against that perception? How do you, how do you feel about that in general? That, 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 that may exist out there in some, in some realm. Yeah, I think I probably stopped thinking about that a while ago. I mean, early on, it seemed very clear that cap guys were pigeonholed as cap guys, and I was a cap guy when I got to the Giants. Right. Um, you know, the truth is, for the last, I don't know, 15 years, you know, Matt Harris and Martin Mayhew and Ed Triggs have been our cap guy more so than I have. I might might be over the shoulder a little bit or might have, you know, some direction or, you know, I guess I'll, you know, Ultimately, I suppose that a buck rests with me and then, you know, Ernie, Jerry or Dave, whoever the GM is. But, you know, we've empowered other people to really manage our day to day salary cap and our our contract contract structures. And um, to some extent, our negotiating positions, although that's sort of when myself and our personnel people and the GMs will get more involved. But so I haven't really been our cap guy in a while, but that's, you know, you enter the league that way. That's what you're seen as. And that's fine. You know, you I still, again, overse- you still oversee it, though. Yeah, it just doesn't require a lot of oversight. I mean, Eddie Triggs is fantastic at it. He's a better salary. Well, he's not a salary cap analyst, a director of football operations, but as part of his duties, he's, you know, he's the first person, you know, when it comes to cap issues for us. And he's, kind of, yeah. He's, he, yeah, and he's he's better at than I ever was. And and Matt Harris was was better at than I ever was too. Martin was here for a year and you know, his experience was kind of unique for the role, but he was terrific. But uh, you know, Matt and Ed, who sort of grew up doing the cap work with us. I mean, they grew up to be better at it than I ever was, in my opinion. It's funny because, you know, I don't think most people look at it that most people outside of the organization don't, don't look at it that way. They don't, they didn't know that they did. They just assumed that you were, you know, cause when you list your responsibilities, salary cap is still there. So they just assume, Hey, Kevin, Kevin is running the, the giant salary cap. He's in charge of the giant salary cap. So I, I find that very interesting. And I knew you were working with Ed uh, or Ed was working on the salary cap. I just didn't know that he, ba- that he basically was, I, 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 tell me if I'm wrong, but shouldering most of the load in that, in that regard now. What was that? I'm sorry. I said, he looks to see it, the way you presented it. He seems to be shouldering that load. Most of it now. Uh, I don't think most people knew that. Yep. No, it's, it's again, it, it's again, oversight. It falls on me, but Ed is the day to day. He's managing our cap amongst all the other hats that he wears in our building, but um, he, he knows the CBA as good, if not better than I do. He's on the phone with the league office as much, if not more often than I am about cap and contract issues and, and really anything player personnel wise too. He's the point person speaking to the league office as often as I am. Um, no, it's, 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 he's been, uh, 
well, I was going to say he's been raised well, but that's not how, what I meant. He's just, he's, <laughs> he's grown into the position very well. He's, he's exceptional at it and he's, you know, I'm proud of the job that he does. It seems that you're one of the point people with agents though. I mean, when I talk to agents, uh, they, I mean, I know a lot of them speak to Ed too, but maybe more so than other places, the Giants, the way you guys have been set up, the general manager hasn't been a point person for many agents and the, and the negotiating of contracts. Uh, what would you, what would you say to that? Uh, it's probably true for different reasons. I think when I worked for Ernie, Ernie had been around long enough and spoken to agents. Right. That predates me. So I was really speaking of Ernie. Yeah. I don't really know about that setup. I'm right. talking more well, either Jerry, Jerry, and then into, into Dave. Yeah, I mean, it, well, it starts with her only because that's sort of set up the um, the foundation oh, for, yeah. I guess, me, me being the primary person to speak to agents. But that was just because Ernie, um, by the time I got here, if he didn't have to speak to another agent for the rest of his life, he'd have been happy. <laughs> and then when Jerry got the job. So you feel um, like that you know, now then, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, there, I, I think I, I there are agents I really enjoy working with. Um, there are some that I'm not very familiar with. And at this point, I'm I'm pretty happy to have Ed sort of take the lead on those. Right. Um, but the ones that I have a really good working relationship, I think it's important um, not to leverage those relationships, but if it helps in a negotiation and not to win it, but just to get to the end game, um, I'd rather do that instead of having to spend more time with, you know, introductions and get to know you. Right. Well, as the assistant general manager, I know like, when you guys were scouting Daniel, you were one of the people that goes down there, right? Um, when you guys make coaching hires, you you sit on the sit in on the interview. What's sort of your involvement in those kind of big decisions? I mean, my involvement is uh, whatever it is I'm asked to contribute. I mean, I just follow the lead of my bosses. So if Dave says go look at the quarterbacks. I go look at the quarterbacks. If John Mayer asked me to sit in on coaching interviews, then I'm going to sit in the coaching interviews and contribute as best I can. It's really not being uh, short about it. I just, that's, no, no, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I do what I'm told. And um, it was a great experience, both. I mean, I, I hadn't been involved in coaching hires before. So um, when John and Dave asked me to do that, um, the last two go arounds was um, flattering. Um, I wasn't quite sure what to contribute the first time around, but it was <laughs> a real education. And, um, and it's, a, it's a really input? fascinating. Did ask for your input a lot as you went along? Or were you kind I of mean, just a fly on the wall? Appropriately so. Second time, I mean, maybe I'm more below. than the first? Uh, I don't really know how to answer that question, but I think it's my involvement is appropriate to my rank. You know, I, mean, I, I, I was asked to be there for a reason, and right. I had opinions, and I had questions to ask the candidates, and um, hopefully they helped shed some light on those candidates. And when I asked my opinion about who we talked to, I certainly gave it. You, you talked about the uh, economics of football and kind of – how we have evolved here. Um, I'm curious your thought on how analytics plays into it compared to, you know, earlier in your tenure and how much do you rely on it when it comes to, I don't know, on negotiation salary side where, where you kind of, you know, look or, or think it best fits in this sport. I think that it has a role in everything we do. I think the degree to which it has a role depends on what specifically you're talking about. When we first got into the analytics space, well, first of all, back up for one second. I mean, 
the NFL has always had analytics. We just never called it that. I mean, right. everything we do quality control wise, self-scouting, opponent scouting is tendencies, trends, and, and all that comes down to analytics, whether it's um, objective data or whether it's, you know, subjective intuition, but we've always used analytics. Um, but 10 years ago, roughly when we started bringing in more technology that gathered more data for us, the first thing, the first area was most useful for was for our performance area, strength and conditioning and, um, and medical. And that's where we sort of focused our attention. That was when um, you guys were kind of, uh, in, you were going through that run of injured years. Uh, that was part of it. There wasn't, but it wasn't in response to those injuries, but we were very happy that as we were having that run of injuries, you know, there were new technologies like, you know, GPS tracking that allowed you to bring in a new tool to help you with either injury prevention or return to play when guys were recovering from injuries. And, um, I would love to be a fly on the wall when you guys were telling Tom, uh, that you needed a, what what did you have? Like the break in the middle of practice that one summer? (laughs) (laughs) You know, Tom Tom was, was remarkably open-minded about it. Cause I, you know, we kind of half expected it to be a bit of a challenging conversation and hard to convince him, but right. he, look, Tom was always very open to anything that would make us better and help us win. And nobody was bothered more by injuries than Tom was. Oh, yeah, I just don't know that things that that just drove him, um, <laughs> you know, as well as anyone. So um, the thing that Tom, <laughs> that to get too off track here, but you know, when you use GPS tracking data, a lot of the terminology they use is doesn't mean what, you know, at the time a 65 year, 65 year old coach was hearing, you know, it would say it was tracking workload as if workload was a positive. Oh, my guys are working hard as opposed to, you no, know, we're taxing the player too hard. The workload, you don't want it to be at a certain level. And Tom right. would just, you know, want to find out who's working hard on the team. I was like, no, it's not what it's telling us, Tom. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, this is more of a, how much we're stressing the body workload, not right. a, are they giving you what you expect kind of workload? So that there was some translation involved, but generally speaking though, the, the idea of bringing in new ideas, new concepts, new technologies, to help us manage our roster with respect to injury prevention and return from injury was, was phenomenally well-received. So that was, that was our first foray into it. Um, and we thought it would be a longer stretch before it would become as important to the scouting process as it is now. But, um, a lot of the next gen stats and the data we collect on Sundays is really allowing, um, for a much more in-depth look into what happens between the lines and evaluating players. It's, it's still, you know, I would say it's still first and foremost performance of medical, um, and then also, uh, opponent self-study and then, you know, scouting would probably be the third prong of where it's really taken off in the last three to five years. Mm-hmm. And then cap and contracts, which I think was the original question. I mean, you know, it's in there. It's always been in there. I don't know that we're running complex models on how to best allocate our cap dollars based on, you know, economic or financial theory. But, you know, we certainly, you know, use our finances as data like anything else and study it and identify trends and what works for us, what's worked around the league, um, where our liabilities are and, and, you know, how we can evaluate our cap partner. Well, cap hygiene, but really more than just cap hygiene. It's, it's, you want to be looking at the health of the entirety of what you're doing. It's your cap room plus your roster composition, plus your, 
know, what kind of term you have on the players on your roster, plus your future financial, especially guaranteed commitments. I mean, it's, you're trying to create a, like you're always looking to study how to best study the entirety of what you've together and what it looks like today and what it looks like going forward and how it compares mm-hmm. to who you're competing against. You've been involved in a lot of negotiations over these years, huh? Uh, I assume you have some good stories, but I'm just curious in your mind, like what kind of sticks out? What are, what are some of the most memorable negotiations for maybe better or worse, whatever that, that kind of stick out to you over these years? Uh, I mean, it's hard not to go to at least the first three Eli Manning contracts just because of the size. I mean, it's, it's, pretty awe-inspiring the amount of numbers that we we end up talking about and and it's a tremendous amount of responsibility so those stick out just because of the gravity of the outcome um yeah i mean he take heck he was the uh at least as of last year you know when he retired whatever he was the uh the mo- made the most money from football in in uh nfl history so yeah i mean to get three to three contracts is just an amazing Think for any any player in this league, but three mega contracts uh, that at at that size is just staggering. Really, it, it's unbelievable. So yeah, you, I mean, you, guys did, you guys did all right with those because it never, you know, hindered. You, you guys were able to win during the most part of that, and it, it you know worked out for got you got obviously your money's worth for two Super Bowls with the, with that quarterback. So um, yeah, I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna pay someone see. more than anybody else in the history of the game, that's the kind of person you want to pay it to, right? Is that it? Anything, any other ones kind of, kind of stick out to you? What was, what was the toughest negotiation you've ever been in? I don't know that I, I'd call them tough. They just all have their own sort of rhythm to them. And, you know, doing Chris Knee's big second contract was um, not so much a challenge, but just interesting because, you know, he's also the coach's son-in-law and, you know, it's, <laughs> And, and very honestly, I'd say it's about a lot of our players. I mean, once the players in your building for three and four years, I mean, I know we're supposed to treat everyone with a certain degree of, you know, from an agnostic lens. But I don't know. It's you get to know these guys, and it's you know, it's I don't like nature. saying no to. Yeah, I don't like saying no to people I don't like, but I also don't like putting us over the barrel financially. So it's trying to balance those two things. And I want to pay Eli Manning's and the Chris Sneeds. I just want us to be able to sign more players to help them win at the same time. So right. it's always balancing that, and then. You know, do, you, do you have to explain so, that to guys? Do, do you have that conversation with them at times? Or do not, you try to I, avoid that? I mean, that's just non-beneficial for you guys. It would be very, very uncommon for me to reach out to a player about his contract, especially during the negotiations, because I, I just think that the relationship between the player and the agent is you've got to respect it. Now, I, I think that if I feel like an agent is not being honest or representing our position... Yeah, I mean, that's, and I know that. And then that's not, it's not productive to getting to the end game. That doesn't mean that we're not going to call out an agent and if necessary to the player, if the agent is not playing above board or communicating accurately what we've said or representing a position as it was presented to him accurately, we'll, we'll certainly correct that, you know. But, um, but it'd be very, very rare for me to go to a, you know, a player of ours and and speak to them during the negotiations about the negotiations. So we'll always talk to them beforehand and we'll say, we're, we'd like to begin. Are you comfortable with us starting this process? We're going to trust the agent to communicate with you. We're always available to give you copies of whatever we share with the agent offers that are sent, but we're not going to chase you down to involve you in this process, you know, to anything you need from us, you've got to come get it from us, but we want to make sure that 
they're on notice that this is going to start and we're hopeful to get it done quickly. We plan on being fair to both him and the club and, um, and not encourage them to come seek us out, nor do we feel like we have to remind them that the agent works for them, but we just make sure that they're aware that if you're not hearing anything, you might not be hearing everything. So, right. Um, just make sure they're aware of that. You were busy this off season. It was a busy off season for you guys. You guys, uh, you, you went shopping in free agency for, I mean, there's, there's really no, no kind of way around that. Uh, what was your impression of it? It seemed to almost some of the opportunities just presented themselves. I mean, it wasn't like, it didn't feel like you went in and you were, this was your plan. You were going to get X number of guys. It seems like it just sort of uh, naturally happened along the way. Well, we certainly had a plan. I mean, like any off season, we, we finish our season, we evaluate our roster and then we know where it is that we want to get better or where we have opportunities to best get better. And then we go through evaluating the free agent market and we have our board just like a draft board and we have our targets and um, some of those targets don't make it to market. Some targets um, might resign once the market starts or go somewhere else. You know, you have to be ready to adjust. So you always have a plan A, B, C, D, you know, go on through the alphabet. But um this year was a little bit different in that we weren't sure the the market from the year before when some extensions were done, even um, after the pandemic had started. And there was um, a serious possibility that league finances and club finances would take a hit. You still saw extensions getting done that were at and above the top of the market. So we weren't sure what, what, if that was that predicting what the UFA market would look like if clubs were spending that to retain some of their players during the pandemic would 32 clubs be spending the same way on new players still in a pandemic, but in free agency. And we didn't know, you know, we we were prepared for that to be the case. And if that was the case, we weren't going to go above the top of the market for certain positions and certain players, but we thought they were tremendous players. But the reality of free agency is that it's not a negotiation. It's an auction. You know, Ernie taught me that very early on. And as a result, the prices are just, they're not good prices. Doesn't mean you never, you never go into free agency aggressively, and you, you just know that you're going to have to pay a premium, and it won't look like a good price at least for year one. That's what you're buying. Um, what we found this year is that we thought that um, players around the league, and you can look at all the free agents that were signing early, but they were getting good money, top of the market money, but they weren't breaking the ceiling at most of those positions. So once we had to do a bit of an adjustment early in free agency and we saw what was left and maybe it's some positions where history would tell you that you're going to have to go well above what you're comfortable for in free agency to buy people, to to sign people in that position. um, It seemed like the market settled, not at bargains, but you're just paying top of the market as opposed to way over the market and right. so we we sort that of that seems to explain uh kenny galladay and adoree jackson i mean that seems to be you know why they fit in kind of where they did in your mind like i think those are good examples i mean there's lots correctly? of them yeah i mean i guess those two guys you could probably put in that category i'm thinking more generally speaking and if you look at you know the pass rushers the corners and the receivers all around the market right you know typically those players got great money and they should be happy with their deals and and by no means did anyone get a steal, but as opposed to normally you saw, Oh, why is that second receiver getting number one money? Or why is that guy who's, you know, 
a second 10 pass rusher in the league, but now he's making top three money kind of thing. You know, you didn't see those kinds of leaps and what players were getting relative to what was reasonably their spot in the market. Um, so this year seemed like there was a bit of a governor on, on what people were willing to spend for obvious reasons. And with our ownerships, um, tremendous support. And we had that from early in the off season to be aggressive and pursue what we thought would really help this team, regardless of what our 2020 finances look like. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we felt fairly well armed to go and be aggressive, you know, and, and you can't do this every year. Um, and hopefully you're in a position where you're, you're developing a roster. You don't need to do this very often, but, um, right. you know, we, we felt like this was a good year to do it for a lot of reasons because of the players that were available, where the market was going, where we think the trajectory of this team is, um, and the program that we're building, it just seemed like there was a bit of alignment. Um, you know, I, I think that if you'd asked us in January, what should we spend just as a raw dollar amount and, and cap effect versus what we ended up spending, I'd say we probably outkick that a little bit, but, mm-hmm. um, but still we, we were aggressive. A Dory kind of became available later maybe. And you, you, you kind it's, of, it's not one, it's not one thing. It's just, right, you know, I'm we, just saying, cause that one just happened later on in free agency and as a big money move, bigger money. Move. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say that happened when it did. And, and that was probably the piece that put us over what we thought we were going to spend. But, you know, if he had been early in, you know, the first day of free agency, you know, all the other things that we did, you know, the collection of, of what we did in free agency, we probably would still want to do all those things. We just, decided to push the envelope a little bit with ownership support. And, and again, I can't say it enough. I mean, it's, there aren't many teams that had that kind of support to be this aggressive in this market coming off of the year that we just had, and, you know, it's, you know, you'd asked me before, why, why is this job better than some other GM jobs? I mean, it's reasons like that. That's part of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, every coach probably has their own unique twist and, and you know, to work with. And there's differences between every every one of them and uh, what what they want and their contributions to working with you guys. What how different or what's been different about working with Joe? Uh, I mean, every coach is different. I think um, what I really appreciate about Joe and his staff is the attention they give to the personnel side of things. You know, we've always had Tom's staff was really involved in the personnel. Mm-hmm. Uh, McAdoo's staff was very involved. Sure, very involved, and they were, were tremendously helpful. It allowed us to find where we had um, consensus between you know what coaches are looking for, what they want, and what we've evaluated on the football ops and the scouting side. Um, but Joe's staff, I think, just they, they make it an even greater point of emphasis. Um, and more than anything else, again, every staff is asked to do it, and every staff does it well describing the traits and the qualities they're looking for and the players on the roster position by position. That's not unique, mm-hmm. but I just think that the time they spent and the teaching they did to all of this of what they're looking for, for what they want to run and how they want to play football. I think it, it helped us galvanize our draft and our free agency board for two years. Now it's been, you know, we've been operating a little shorthanded because of the pandemic. Um, you know, it's not easy to bring in, new coaching staff and and turn over a large portion of your roster during these conditions but i think i like to think that we've done a pretty good job of it in large part because of how much communication and how much teaching has been going on 
both ways, you know, but certainly this staff did a great job um, breaking down exactly what they're looking for. Um, whenever we're talking about a position or a role, um, you know, they've been more than happy to have command performances in front of the entire scouting departments and explain it from, from top to toes. And, um, and it makes the evaluation process uh, much cleaner. So I think yeah. that's helped us. I mean, my impression from, you know, speaking with Joe and much of his, I'm sure it trickles down to his staff too, is every detail matters to him, you know, and, and I'm sure that that seems to be, it seems to be the case with his staff as well. Like they're looking at every little detail and, and I, you know, they're not, they're not saying, well, well they, you know, we're, we're, we'll, uh, we'll look past that. Let's just concentrate on the big stuff here. Like they're worried. They're, they're looking at every little thing. You, you, how much do you sense that as well in your dealings with them? Yeah, I mean, very detailed group. And I think when it comes to the personnel stuff, I mean, so many of them are coming from college where they a lot of times function as their own personnel department. Right. So they have a background in it to some extent. I mean, that has a benefit. I, I mean, they know a lot of these guys have been drafting the last couple of years. I mean, they they know they've they've recruited them themselves. Absolutely. And I think because of that, it also gives them an appreciation for having a fully functioning personnel department that they can lean on that can do it 12 months a year because, you know, the nature of the game is that, you know, they, they take off their coaching hat, so to speak, it once the season's over and they have to rush to get through an entire draft class or entire free agent class. Whereas we have personnel departments that that's what they do 12 months a year. Right. And right now it's a really good, it's a really good uh, coexistence between our coaching and personnel departments. We'll end on this because I've taken up enough of your time already. What are you most excited to see this season from this group that you guys have put together? More than anything, I'm looking forward to having a training camp with preseason games, which, you know, it's going to roll, cause some eyes to roll, but it's just, you know, a new <laughs> staff with, an, with 90, 91 players um, that last year, all they had was, you know, shorts and t-shirts work before we had to play games on Sundays. You know, now they're going to get the full complement of an entire training camp, three preseason games, evaluate our players, put in their systems against other teams running their systems, you know, doing two scrimmages with New England and Cleveland um, and and allowing all of this from our, our front office to our coaching staff to our players just you know, we all throw around the word normal right now, but it's, it's just the, the, the entire suite of what goes into preparing for the season you know it's we're still falling a little bit short than what we're all typically used to but we're a lot closer and i'm really looking right. forward to seeing what this staff and this roster will do with with um most of what they're used to being able to do to prepare for for the season I, i'm really that's what i'm excited for i mean maybe it's my perception but i just think this year for the first time in a while there's probably more excitement around this group than than there has been in a while, and and I think and I think it's warranted to be to be quite honest. So, you stay healthy, Kevin. You guys have a great year. Enjoy yourself. Hopefully, we do get back to complete normalcy soon enough, and we'll do this again. I guess what every twenty two years, we'll, we'll, let, <laughs> yeah, we'll let you out, you come out and do this. <laughs> yeah, they'll they'll roll me out of the basement one more time in twenty two years. <laughs> It's yeah, good to talk to you, buddy. You won't be a young guy in 22 years for sure. But now I appreciate your time and hope everyone got to, to learn plenty about you. Cause I, I think a lot, a lot of people were intrigued by, uh, you know, who, who is Kevin Abrams? So we, we chased down the ghost for the senior practice, Jordan. Feeling like you need a marketing degree and an extra day in your week to successfully market your small business. Let constant contact do the heavy lifting for you. 
Constant Contact's award-winning marketing platform has powerful tools that make it easy to grow your audience, engage your customers, and sell more to boost your business. Now, in just a few clicks, you can launch a marketing campaign that's tailored to your business and goals. That includes email, social, SMS, and more. So you can sell more, raise more, and fast-track your business growth. Plus, you can always count on Constant Contact's award-winning customer support for guidance along the way. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. This podcast is proud to be supported by Jets Pizza, the number one pick in Detroit-style pizza. Why? It's simple. Jets is better. With the thickest, crispiest, cheesiest Detroit-style pizza in the country, there's no competition. Right now, get $5 off any eight-corner pizza with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Go to jetspizza.com to learn more and find a location near you. Again, try Jets' signature eight-corner pizza and get $5 off with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Jets Pizza. Better because it has to be. I hope you all enjoyed that as much as I did. I found that very informative. I mean, I mean the fact that Kevin Abrams... Uh, is sitting in on coaching interviews and he's going and meeting and scouting and watching players like Daniel Jones and his scouting background actually goes and predates his time with the Giants, which, by the way, is 20 plus years ago. I don't think most people know that. And I found it interesting also that he he sort of like he said years ago, he kind of got over the fact that he had this uh, perception as a cap slash money guy. So, um I learned a lot there. And the reality is Dave Gettleman is 70 years old and he's not going to be the general manager forever. Soon enough, uh, whether it's the Giants choice or Dave Gettleman's choice, they'll probably be looking for a new general manager. And if the Giants have success with Joe Judge and this group, it's almost kind of natural that then, you know, you can then roll it into Kevin Abrams, who's been in a, a significant role in this organization for a long time. And you get, you kind of realize that he's not just a salary cap guy. He's not just the money guy. Like he knows about evaluating personnel as well. Now it'd be interesting if he has full autonomy over that, what changes or how much changes or how much he would maybe rely on other people around him to help in that regard. But uh, anyway, uh, you, as, as I, and I know Kevin because I've you know had conversations with him, sat down and, and talked to him before, but I never really got the full details of the the route he traveled, and really the full details of what his job description was. So I enjoyed that. Let's wrap up now with a little Jordan on the beat. This is where I tell you what it's like to cover the Giants, the NFL, and work for ESPN in general. What I'm going to do here is I'm going to give you a quick rundown of what camp training camp is going to be like this year from a media perspective, at least what I think it's going to be like, because as we sit here right now, I haven't been to a practice yet, Uh, but we are allowed out of practice. There are going to be no fans there for almost every practice, except for that August 11th fan fest and uh, the joint practices and maybe uh, another one in, I believe in Newark that's coming up this weekend, but we're going to be, because there's no fans, it's going to be hard to get good practice video and footage and they can shut down, you know, when we're allowed to tape a little easier because if fans aren't there, then all of a sudden 
the team then has control. So we're going to be kind of far away. We're not necessarily because of COVID restrictions allowed like on the field or at least the Giants, the way they interpret it. We're not allowed on the field close to the action while they practice, even though some for some reason we're allowed to interview players. This will be outside, but like they'll bring them outside. But we're basically going to be face to face with them outside. But yet somehow we're not allowed near the field during practice, which doesn't really make a ton of sense to me. But that seems to be the setup that we're going to have. So the video and photos aren't going to be great from practice because they're going to be from, at times, 150 yards away. Think about that. Remember, 150 yards, basically. You're talking about a whole football field plus a half of another one. Think about how far that is from end to end. And that's going to be our view at times. So it's going to be tough to get you good video. I mean, I'll do. we're going to do my best. I ordered some sort of uh, magnifying lens in in anticipation. I don't know if it's going to be here in time for the first practice, but we'll have it eventually so that I can try and provide you the best content that we had that that's possible given the uh, accommodations. So that's camp. But at least the good part is we're at least going to be able to do one on one interviews. So then we'll be able to find unique information that not everyone else has in those one-on-one conversations with players, coaches, et cetera. And to me, that's a huge part of the job. I thrive. I believe I thrive off that. I live on that. Really. That's what separates you from other people. Anybody could sit there and take the podium information and, you know, the giants email it to people. So there was people who aren't even there who could get the podium information, but I could find out details I could find out little nuggets by talking to people on the side, on the record, off the record. And now that we could at least do that face-to-face, huge, huge change compared to last year. So we're getting back towards normal. Are we fully there yet? We're still not in the locker room. We haven't gotten to that point yet. And with uh, us as a society going in the wrong direction a little bit, you cross your fingers and just hope during the regular season that we're going to get there. Because, I mean, that's where a reporter makes their money, being able to work the locker room, be able to, you know, develop those relationships. And that differentiates you from everybody else. You know, Joe Schmo, who's covering the Giants and not in the locker room, can't do the things that you do if you're able to work that locker room and get around there and make those connections and make the, and have those conversations. So I'm crossing my fingers. And hoping that we get to that point, that by the regular season we're going to be allowed in. But right now, at least we'll be able to do face-to-face interviews. That's a step in the right direction. So that's what training camp looks like. Joe Judge, for the most part, I think is going to have his press conferences in person too, which is a lot. Having a press conference in person is is way different than having it on Zoom. Because I could sit there and follow up as many times as I want on certain questions. I could sit there and keep pounding the subject so the person who's being interviewed can't just skirt the question easily. Now, you don't do that all the time. But on Zoom, it's really hard to do that. Because you kind of ask your question, they can mute you, and you're kind of just out of the picture. And then you only get one. You can't sit there and ask three questions. So, like... I might ask my question early and then someone else brings up a different topic later and you, you judge gives his answer and, and you might want to follow up with him on that topic again. So he just doesn't jump to another topic. So these are the things that 
we're going to kind of get back to in training camp this summer, hopefully, where we'll be have an opportunity to really uh, pepper guys with questions and follow up, and not let you know not let them just move from subject to subject and brush off questions as easily as they they want to and are able to when it's just strictly on Zoom. So, all right, I gave you enough on that. I hope you enjoyed this episode. This is the start, of really the start of the twenty. 21 season grind it begins now so like subscribe tell your friends about this podcast breaking big blue we're going to keep growing it it's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger and really what you get in breaking big blue that you can't really get elsewhere is that information that i'm talking about that inside information those nuggets of information from the conversations that i've had the uh one-on-one interactions, what I've seen with my own eyes. Those little nuggets is what you get at Breaking Big Blue that you don't get anywhere else. So um, wrap it up here. Reminder, you can always send me questions. Follow on Instagram and TikTok as well because I'm going to be doing a lot of content, inside access type content during training camp on those two platforms. Username at Jordan Ron on ESPN. Make sure you follow. TikTok, Instagram, in addition to Twitter, especially for news. That's where I go for my news dumps. Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok is where you'll find sort of the inside access stuff of training camp at Jordan Ronan ESPN. That's it for this episode of Breaking Big Blue. I'm your host, Jordan Ronan. See you next time. <laughs>